Hi everybody, this is Pat Ryan again with Childhood History and Critique, and this time I have a conversation with Ensgar Allen, lecturer in education at the University of Sheffield in the UK. Ensgar teaches in the uh, area of educational philosophy, history, and theory. He has recently published a book, Benign Violence, Education in and Beyond the Age of Reason, from Pelgrave Macmillan. Our conversation was recorded in December 2014, and I've broken it into two parts. In part one, the conversation centers on Ensgar's influences. He talks about some of the stylistic choices that he made in Benign Violence, how it fits with the purpose of the project, and is informed by his understanding of critique. It is then in part two that we discuss the contents of the book in more detail, particularly the monitorial and the moral training schools of 19th century Britain. In this part, Ensgar outlines how his understanding of the project changed over time, and we discuss a few of the key distinctions upon which his argument rests. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So, Ensgar, thank you for... um for joining Childhood History and Critique. It's a pleasure to, to be able to speak with you after uh, reading an article and a, and a book uh, from you. I'd like, to, I'd like to start by giving you an opportunity to tell us a little bit uh, about uh, your academic life or your intellectual journey, uh, the, the journey that brought you to write uh, Benign Violence. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's really good to be talking to you. Uh, so thank you very much for that. I guess a big influence on me when I came to historical research, uh, looking into the histories of education, examination, and then eventually meritocracy, um, was that I was looking at it very much through the lens of, of Michel Foucault through his work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess, you know, I could make it very simple um, and just say that I guess I adopted a typically Foucauldian position, which is to say that the purpose of historical research is to make the present strange, um, which has become, I think, almost a cliche, the idea of making the present look strange through history. I've I've read it a lot. Um, It's become quite a common idea. But I still think it's a worthy objective, as long as we really try genuinely to pursue it, as long as the researcher in question really tries to make a disturbance in the present. I, I think I've also been influenced increasingly by Nietzsche, um, who rather famously, and amongst other things, wrote a genealogy or history of morals. Yes. Uh, he did this in the late 19th century, as you know, and when he was writing the idea that morality, especially Christian morality, could have a history and hence could be itself uh, a thing of the past one day, was obviously quite a scandalous thing uh, to suggest. Yes. I quite like that because we've got a model of scholarship here that sought to challenge precisely those things in his present uh, that he believed to be beyond question. And what I like about that book and his other work is that what he was doing is he was trying to invert things generally considered good so that they appeared bad or just a bit grubby, and he reconsidered things conventionally considered to be evil so that their merits could be acknowledged, and and he did that by telling their histories. And I guess in a similar way, um, I'm interested in disturbing how we think about education so that we're no longer so sure about what's good and what's bad in educational settings. Uh, hence the title of the book, Benign Violence. 
it's deliberate. It situates side by side something harmless with something that's universally acknowledged to be bad. And I guess uh, the book is a provocation, and so is the title in that respect. Yes, you know, there's that the line beyond good and evil, yeah. and that can be read a lot of different ways. Mm. One way that I've, and I have similar influences that, that you describe as your influences, and the one way that I've made sense of that important line has not been so much that there is no good and evil, but that whatever it is that I think I'm supposed to be doing as a scholar, it is beyond the assignment of good and evil. Now, I don't know if that speaks to you, that, that somehow if it's simply assigning good and evil or taking the assignments of good and evil that I've been given and distributing them appropriately just isn't very interesting to me. Mm. And I think that's consistent with the notion that morality itself can has a, a historicity. Yeah. That it's not an essence or a transcendence. Or, it, or, or to put it another way, if there is an essence to good and evil, that we don't have immediate access to it, that we can't digest it as if we were eating an apple, that we're separated from that kind of knowledge of it. Does that speak to your project, or is there any connection in what I'm saying to the way you think about these things? Uh, it does, uh, I guess in, in two ways. Um, firstly, I think if you're trying to write like that, um, it means that you have to do a kind of critique, which means that you can no longer appeal to any kind of fixed categories. And that puts you in quite an awkward, but also quite an exciting position. You have to suspend certain kinds of judgment to come to other uh, forms of critique. And I, I enjoy that. Uh, I enjoy doing that very much. But I think that also, um, when you're trying to write beyond good and evil, um, or at least in a way that's not directly subservient to uh, two things that are considered good and things that are considered evil. Um, I think you also have to recognize that it's, it's kind of impossible as well. So I'm always yeah. interested by how um, educational goods are always haunting uh, my ideas, and they get in there when I don't quite notice. Um, so it's very hard to separate yourself from them, and I think it's a long, long process, and... Uh, perhaps one that's uh, ultimately impossible, I don't know. Those are really interesting questions and perhaps unanswerable, but I do think they give the listeners a sense of where you're coming from in the broadest sense. Mm. I'd like to turn your attention to your book and to just ask you in, in an open-ended way to capture either a part or all of your you know, your book's main argument or some aspect of your book's arguments? Okay. Um, well, if you'll permit me, I'd like to give a slightly evasive response to that question, and, and I want to explain why. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of an odd book, um, and to a certain extent, it resists summary. And I found the hardest part of the book to write, in a way, was the blurb, the little bit of text which appears on the back cover. Uh -huh. I really struggled with that. I did it right at the end, um, just before I sent the book in. And so the blurb claims, and this is what I settled on, that education is violent, and yet this violence is concealed by its good intentions. And according to that blurb, I, I, give it, I say that the book offers a history of good intentions, 
in education, ranging from the birth of modern schooling and modern examination to the rise and fall of meritocracy. So I eventually managed to do that. Um, another way of me summarizing the book, I guess, would be just to look at the contents page. That would make my life easy, too. So I could say, OK, the book starts by telling a history of examination, of, uh, a history of schooling in the first part. Then it has a history of eugenics, statistics and intelligence testing in the second part. And then in the third part, you have a history of meritocracy and attempts to make uh, education more equitable. So I can give that kind of summary, too. Mm -hmm. So here, you know, there you have it. I can give you uh, I can tell you I can give you a list of some of the topics that the book covers. Um, but I still find it really difficult to give the book a summary argument. And each time it's a bit like the idea of an intellectual journey or intellectual life or what brought you to write this. Every time I'm asked this kind of question, I respond with something different. <laughs> um, which is kind of frustrating sometimes but specifically with, with regard to the book the reason for that is I, that I think that the book needs to be experienced and that's how it's designed so it doesn't really have a basic argument I hope which can be boiled down and delivered in a blurb or in an abstract or summarised in a couple of hundred words it's made up of a series of arguments and provocations that I hope will affect different people in different ways. <laughs> so overall with this book, I guess I'm hoping that will be a kind of a purgative, I suppose, designed to release us from some of our more problematic educational commitments. Or if I put it more modestly, I'd say I'd like the book to encourage its reader to radically question the educational enterprise itself and entertain a kind of radical doubt, if only for a moment, in which they consider the value of the whole enterprise, no longer hiding behind the idea that it must have its core something worth protecting. Or, let me put it like this, and this is a bit devious, um, you could say that the educational core, the good bit at the middle that we're all protecting or trying to protect, is already surrounded by lots of other people trying to protect it. They're the sort of educational critics. And what they're doing is they're trying to fight off our attackers. They're attempting to protect education from everything which undermines it, which reduces it to cynical imperatives and so on. But my devious suggestion to you, I guess, is that these defenders of education rarely look behind themselves. And I think if they did, they would see nothing but the rear ends of the other critics who are, like them, protecting education from attack. I guess what I'm suggesting is that at the core... There is little, uh, if nothing, left, perhaps. Um, yeah. That's a, a provocation, I guess. Um, another reason why I find it hard to summarise the book, again, is because of how it's written. So it's, it's not a standard monograph. Uh, it's not standard text. It's made up of lots of short sections, ranging from a sentence or two to a few paragraphs in length. And I guess together they develop an argument or a sequence of arguments, um, but they also give me a lot of freedom to jump about from topic to topic, which you wouldn't have with a, a more standard text. And I guess I write like that because I'm conscious of the fact that as academics, we're really heavily constrained by academic conventions, um, which we feel most acutely through that examiner, which is the peer reviewer. Um, and I guess in this book, I'm, I'm trying to escape that too. Well, this is one of the things that I mentioned to you earlier that is most striking about the book is that and I'm having trouble uh, finding the words to describe it, but the one that comes, the phrase that comes to mind is there's a clear 
violation of some genre, genre conventions in the book itself. And having also read an article by you, it's not that you can't fit into the confines of the academic peer-reviewed article, but in the book you had a freedom that you were able to work out with the publishers and the editors to do various things. Some of it comes down to, it's very simple. You may have sections that are cut off from each other and they're self-enclosed and they may, the idea may be represented later with evidence going in a, a different direction. I found it refreshing. It's something that it, I think if you're willing to, to, to go with what you've written, there's a playfulness in it. It's something I, I, I must admit I enjoy. Um, so there's a certain amount of enjoyment and pleasure behind writing like that, and it's the sort of pleasure which I definitely don't get out of academic writing. Um, but it's always an attempt uh, to connect the argument to the style in which it's written. Um, and now as I'm moving on to different topics beyond this book, um, my justifications for my stylistic choices change according to the content of the argument each time. So, again, I would give a different reason for for the style. Um, I mean, one reason why the text is written so that it keeps on breaking um, is, and so that it doesn't develop a, a, a very linear, very uh, straightforward, very comfortable argument where I'm trying to get the reader just to follow everything that I think uh, and think along with me, mm-hmm. is that I really don't want that. So I don't want my reader necessarily um, to agree with what I'm saying. I want them to um, find it difficult and, and, and question it. And also I want them, through that style, to start questioning not just education, you know, stuff that's happening to other people, but themselves. Um, so, for example, with academic style, typically uh, it's a very precise. The best sort of academic writing is, is extremely precise. You're under no doubt... Or, well, I mean, you can't get rid of interpretation, but the academic is doing everything they can to minimize um, the amount of interpretation that is necessary in order to decipher what they're saying. Uh, If they've got a statement or a critique, they will do everything they can to show you exactly what they mean, who they're talking about, when they're leveling their critique, and so on. But sometimes I, you know, I I can be precise if, if I want, but sometimes I like generalizations too. Mm-hmm. So, if I, you can see that I'm attacking something in education, you're not quite sure where my attack is located, and so hopefully you start to wonder, am I attacking you? <laughs> you wouldn't think that necessarily if I was giving you a more straightforward academic argument, because you'd either be able to say, oh, he's attacking me, I reject it, or you'd be able to say, oh, he's attacking them, and you either reject it or you feel like you're coming along with the author and, yeah, yeah, he's right, he's right, agree. And you become complicit with uh, the critique. You, you agree, you assent to it. I don't want that. And so I'm using different devices like that, I guess, to try and disturb the process of, of, of reading. You've been listening to part one of a conversation between Ansgar Allen and Patrick Ryan on Childhood History and Critique. Recorded in December 2014, Part 2 can be found on the website of the Society for the History of Children and Youth.